Tonight is Wednesday, April 28th, and tonight's the third part of the Spiritual Warfare series. The first message had to do with a proper foundation, not fighting a battle on two hemispheres. You need to have peace in your home so you can take the fight to the enemy, not a divided kingdom. The second message had to do with air warfare, how you combat the enemy through prayer and how prayer tears down mountains and it removes obstacles from your path. And it's just like the Air Force in our natural warfare. It weakens the enemy so that when you come into contact with him face to face, you win. You remember there was a demon that the disciples had problems casting out? And Jesus said this kind comes out with prayer and fasting. If you want to weaken someone's army, the easiest thing for you to do is stand off from a distance and call in the air attack. You call in the, the uh, big B-52 bombers to come drop bombs on them until they're softened. It's called the softened target. So that when your ground troops reach there, the battle's not as fierce. It's easier to take. The same thing happens in the kingdom. First, you shore up your home. You shore up your foundation for ministry. Once you've done that, then you can begin to take the battle to the enemy in prayer. That softens the resistance. It beats the resistance back. The angels are at your disposal at that point. They're engaging the enemy. So that when you come to today's topic, today's message, which is hand-to-hand combat, you can prevail. If your home life is good, if your prayer life is good, when you come face-to-face with the enemy, when you're standing nose-to-nose and eye-to-eye with an enemy of God, you will overcome because you've done the work ahead of time. Your life is in order, and your prayer life has softened the enemy for you. And if, in uh, Zechariah, we're going to read something that will preface where we're going. Tonight, we're going to spend the entire time in Ephesians 6, which gives us the armor of God and will teach us how in the kingdom you have hand-to-hand combat. So, in Zechariah 4, verse 6, I wanted to read this familiar quote to you. So he said to me, this is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord Almighty. No matter what we discuss tonight, no matter what situation or what you might encounter in the kingdom that is warfare, you need to know something. It is never, ever accomplished, a victory ever accomplished by your strength. Now, that's something that we acknowledge mentally. We can quote to each other. But you really have to get it down in your spirit. Because what happens is, when you are facing the enemy, there is a natural inclination to lean on your own arm. When uh, a demonic oppression has caused sickness in your family, and your family is in order, like the first message said, and you've been praying about the will of God and praying to advance and all, instead of engaging the enemy in hand-to-hand combat, a lot of times what we would do is take a census of our own abilities. Well, we have health insurance, and I can cover the deductible. I've got it in my checking account. Let's just run to the doctor. Never, never entering your mind that it might not be by your strengths and abilities that the Lord wants to overcome this problem. We tend to exhaust all of our efforts and then turn to God as a last resort. We need to adjust our thinking towards let's turn to God as our first option. And then as a last resort, 
if this does not seem to be the way the Spirit's leading you, if you seem to be running into a brick wall in every case, then exhaust all of your natural means. Does that make sense? And I'm not talking about giving up and not being in faith. I'm just talking about being spiritually minded first. When you meet an obstacle, think, how can the, the Lord's Spirit overcome this obstacle? Instead of always thinking about, what can I do? Turn with me to Ephesians 6. I'm going to read Ephesians 6:10 through 18, which is the overview of the way that Christians engage in hand-to-hand combat. Then we're going to look at examples from Jesus' life. Now, a lot of times I chose examples because they were from Jesus' life. And there are other scriptures that might come to mind that better illustrate this. I just wanted you to see in the author and perfecter of our faith how he handled things. Does, does that make sense? Okay. So in Ephesians 6, verse 10, it says, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in His mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in heavenly realms. Therefore, put on the full armor of God so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground. And after you have done everything to stand, I'm sorry, after you've done everything to stand, Stand firm then with the belt of truth buckled around your waist, with the breastplate of righteousness in place, and with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. In addition to all of this, take up your shield of faith, with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, and pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for all of the saints. Now, honestly, when you think of this armor, when you've heard this armor talked about in the past, in what way have you heard it applied? And I'll offer the way that I've heard it applied and the way that I've done it in the past. I said, we need to pray this armor on. That's what I have always heard people say. It's what I've talked about. And so we would, let's say we pray for Cassidy. We pray that the helmet of salvation be firmly on her head. We pray that the sword of the Spirit be in her hand. We pray that her feet are shod with the, gopper, the preparation that comes from the gospel of peace. Right? Y'all have heard it like that? There's a real problem with that. Okay? Those are good thoughts. You cannot pray on the armor of God. The armor of God is not something that you pray and it spiritually appears upon your head. You pray for a helmet and and a helmet covers your head. You pray for a sword and one appears in your hand. The armor of God is a lifestyle that you live. See, praying on the breastplate of righteousness without living a righteous life is, is an exercise in futility. It'd be kind of like praying that a demon come out of somebody at the same time that you're inviting it to stay or playing with a Ouija board or, you know, delving in some kind of wickedness. The armor of God is not something that magically appears when you pray. It is something that your lifestyle cloaks you in. As you clothe yourself with Christ and his attributes and go about your daily events, then these things are on you. He describes them as armor so that you'll realize when you're living as Christ called you to, you're armored like a soldier. 
Does that make sense? We see these things and we ask God to add them to us. Paul was describing the Christian life as someone who is armored. Y'all following me so far? Okay. Starting in verse 10, he says, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in His mighty power. Number one rule everybody needs to know. Whether we're talking about facing a demonic force that is foaming at the mouth, or we're talking about facing some kind of obstacle to what God has called you to do. You do not overcome the enemy in your strength. This is why David's census was such a bad thing. It's why Saul uh, performing the sacrifice instead of Samuel was such a bad thing. This is why Cain's sacrifice was rejected and Abel's was accepted. Man has got in his mind the way that man would do things, the way that man should achieve things. And the proverb says, in the end, it leads to destruction or it leads to death. When we face obstacles of any kind, it is the Lord's strength. It is God's power working through you and only that way that you overcome anything for Jesus. When you face the enemy, number one, you don't want to have just been fighting in your own home. Number two, you want to have been praying in advance, having the angels move on your behalf. Number three, you want to know that when you stand with an enemy that wants to kill you, somebody that's spiritually opposed, Satan means your opposition. On the other side of the line from you, that you're working in the Lord's strength. Because there is no doubt the Scripture says over and over and over, and this is not the emphasis of it, but you do get it from the Scripture, angels are superior in stature and in might from men. So you're not going to jump on a demon and beat it up. You're, you're not going to face this power that's held the world in its hands captive from Adam all the way up to the cross and overcome him by your uh, negotiation skills. You see victory because the Lord comes with you. Moving on from there, he says, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in His mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. The way that we put this on, as I've already talked about, is not simply to pray it on. It is to make these things we're fixing to discuss your practice, your lifestyle. It's important, though, that you're aware of the devil's schemes. We go through our lives very often thinking about how to get our kids in bed earlier, how to have a less stressful day on our job, what we're going to eat that night, who we're going to talk to on the phone, who's mad at us, who we like this week, all those things. Never considering that there is this whole world around us just beyond our eyes. We need Elijah's prayer to work for us. We need our eyes to open so that we can see not just the armies of the Lord that are around us, but have insight into the devil's schemes. People do not wake up crack whores overnight. They do not wake up drug dealers overnight. Nobody has a child birthed into the world and they said, boy, I hope this, this one becomes a degenerate. That does not happen in an instant. It happens because the devil has a scheme in place. Scheme is where you get the word schematic. There is an organized plan for destruction for each of your lives, even as there is a will of God. There is a systematic attack and bombardment upon you to prevent you from doing the will of God all of the time. It is our job, just as we seek the will of God, to also begin to gain insight into the methods that the enemy uses to attack you.
this just being real here, okay? If you know that certain shows come on certain channels late at night on TV and that that is a problem for you, you might ought stop, stop watching TV at a certain time. You know, if you know that your struggle is with a, a neighbor that you always get into arguments with every time you see each other, you need to begin to pray before you get out there. If you still don't feel like you can overcome it, go outside at a different time. You know, we need to begin to be aware of the devil's schemes. If every Monday, because you're so worn out from the weekend, you're ugly to the people at work and it's killing your witness, you need to make a concerted effort to be aware that that's the case and overcome it so that when you show up, you're not falling prey to the devil's schemes. Do you be aware of it and we can overcome it. Turn with me to John 14. By the way, the, the first point in this message, and I'm not going to number them all, I just want you to know the first point is that you labor and you battle in the Lord's strength. The second is that you be aware of the devil's schemes. Y'all in John 14:30 says, I will not speak with you much longer, for the prince of this world is coming. He has no hold on me. But the world must learn that I love the Father and that I do exactly what my Father has commanded me. Now get this. Jesus is standing there. Does he, is he aware of the devil's schemes? Yeah, he says the prince of this world's coming. What is the solution? To run and hide in a hole? He says, no. Guys, he doesn't have any hold on me. He's coming after me, but there is nothing in my life he's going to be able to grab hold of to pull me down. And you know what? The world's going to learn that I love the Father and I do exactly what He says. In your being aware of the devil's schemes, just like Jesus, it's not that you run from Him. It's not if the neighbor across the street is ugly to you all the time and it's causing you to sin. It's not that you always avoid seeing Him. It's that you desire for there to be nothing in your life that would have a hold on you. Nothing that could hurt you. This is how that works. You, if your neighbor's speaking abusively to you every time he sees you, you have to learn ahead of time, I need to be dead to self before I go out there. It's impossible to offend a dead man. When he says ugly things to me, he's talking about the guy that has died. He does not yet understand that I have raised to a new life. And take a preemptive strike. When you see him, hit him with the word. Say, hey man, I love you because you are fearfully and wonderfully made. The word of God says that about you. Did you know that? You know, be aware of the devil's scheme and meet him with opposition. If you do that, and our opposition is with gentleness, kindness, love, respect, you will begin to see success. Jesus knew the devil was coming. He wasn't concerned about it. He said, he didn't have a hold on me. There's no area of my life I've compromised and struck a treaty with him about. And the world's going to learn through this that I love the Father and I do what he commands. Number one, you need to struggle in the Lord's power. Number two, you need to be aware of the devil's schemes. Verse 12, For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Y'all tell me, what did that first line say? Our struggle is not against flesh and blood. If your struggle is not against flesh and blood, that was Ephesians 6 I was reading. If your struggle is not against flesh and blood, why do we spend so much time 
worried about flesh and blood. We tend to run to other flesh and blood and talk to them about the flesh and blood problems we're having when the Bible makes this eye-opening statement right off. Your struggle's not against them. It may look like it because they're throwing stones at Stephen or because Saul was hunting down Christians and killing them. It very well could have looked like your struggle was against them. But we have eyes to see. We realize that that person's a puppet on a string. There is a puppet master who holds this world in his hands. That's who your struggle's against. Now, if you're fighting with somebody, do you want to attack the puppet? That doesn't do any harm to them. You just get a new puppet. You want to cut off the hand that's controlling the puppet. So if we're going to talk about hand-to-hand combat, number one, you're going to do it in the Lord's strength. Number two, you're going to do it knowing how the enemy fights. Number three, you're going to strategically attack the head of the organization. Now, what do you know in the Bible as a way to... To attack the enemy. If somebody, if Cassidy, if Mandy says harsh words to Cassidy, what does the Bible say Cassidy's kind words back to Mandy do to the devil? On whose head? Mandy's? Not really. Because if Mandy's lost in saying those things, Mandy has a head and it's not Jesus. See, we are controlled in Christ by the Spirit of God, and our head is in heaven, Jesus. But Ephesians 2 tells us that when you were lost, you were controlled by a spirit of disobedience. That is the head of this world. See, everybody has a head. There's a, there's a master. There's a head of your organization. The federal head of the human race was in Adam, and everybody in him died because they were weakened by the sinful nature and subject to the power of death, and thus, under the control of the prince of the power of the air. Our whole world reflects this. It's why there's frustration in nature. There's frustration in mankind. And it's why we're dying. But we have rejected that order of things. With Satan at the top all the way down, we've rejected it. We've even rejected our old life. We've died to it so that we are free to live a new life with Christ as the head, us under Him. And we are going to have the creation subject to us. So when somebody says something... To you, some lost person says something to you that's ugly. Yes, it's true that when you say something nice to them, it may heap hot coals on their head. But really, it heaps hot coals on their spiritual head. Why would that be? Because you were aware of the devil's scheme. You realized that he was just trying to goad you into a fight with flesh and blood. But instead, you were kind to the flesh and blood and you're taking the battle to him. Next time you're at a Thanksgiving table with lost relatives and they are fighting and they're arguing and they're being ugly, pray in the Holy Ghost under your breath. Get up, walk out of the room and pray and watch and see if you can't affect change in that room through your prayer. I guarantee you can. See, we need to be like David sometimes, willing to play your harp in the presence of Saul because it calms them. We can do that. We have that power. You think that it's a miraculous thing for you to pray for somebody to be healed, right? Well, it's also a miraculous thing for you to pray to help control someone else who is subject to the enemy. You know, when you talk about spiritual warfare, people think of demonic possession. I want you to understand something. If this will help you understand how spiritual warfare occurs. There is no such word 
as possession in the Greek that the New Testament's written in. It does not exist. The word is demonized. And every lost person is demonized. To the degree that they're demonized, we call it possession. Somebody who is so demonized that you see them doing things that are obviously a demon, we call that possession. But everyone who is lost, Ephesians 2 says, is subject to the spirit of disobedience. They're subject to it. If you're subject to something, that's where your allegiance is. You're under its direction, its control. So, although somebody may not be foaming at the mouth when they're doing ungodly things, it's because the God of this world desires for them to do it. And they are His helpless puppets. They're slaves. Slaves to sin. Because their very nature requires it. It craves it. So what you can do in those situations is you can pray against those spiritual powers that are appealing to their flesh. You can't stop the flesh from sinning. You can't cast that out. But you can attack the powers that are controlling them. Yes, speak. You cast them out, you are removing the demonic influence from their life. And the Bible says, you better be careful, because if you make no change... The demons will come back, find the house clean and swept and have a bunch of friends with them. So when you pray for somebody's life to be free from demonic influence, and let's say we're talking to the degree that we would call possession, it has to be followed by salvation and filled with the Holy Ghost. Otherwise, it's a futile effort. Now, that's the most extreme case. Let's talk about less demonized. All right, Just plain old sinful, angry person. If you're going to heap hot coals on their head by speaking good things to them, and you're going to pray against those spiritual powers that are directing them like a puppet, you also need to, as you're removing them, be influencing, praying spiritual influence into their life. I bind the power of of drunkenness from their life. I bind this spirit that keeps dragging this man off to a bar. You pray that way, right? And you also pray for an openness for him to be led by God's Spirit. And then you be willing to be that mouthpiece. You pray other people into their lives to be that kind of influence. You pull one away and you replace it with another. Does that make sense? People are going to serve something, one or the other. You need to give them clear alternatives. And you need to help them by breaking the chains that bind them. This is the idea behind praying for the oppressed. You know, this is not just people in jail, you know. There are people that are slaves around us every day and there's no abolitionist cry. You know, if if you were standing next to African Americans who were on a slave block, knowing what we know now, you would cry out for freedom. You watch the movie Amistad and you cry. You can't believe this happened. And we've got people on our block that are just as much a slave. They don't know what to do. And we act like it's no big deal. We walk by, we see their chains, and we don't make any effort to loose them. And you have been given the power to break those chains. You can do it. Now, you can't keep them free. They have to desire that. They have to contact the same king that you do. But you can help them create some space between them and the enemy so that they can breathe. So that they can get a chance to see God. Mandy, that's what you're doing with Cal. Right now. That's what's going on. We don't think about it in these graphic terms because we don't see it. There's a whole world just beyond your eyes. And we've got to open up. We've got to see into the next realm and know 
You know, people are not the way they are just because of the way their parents treated them when they were little. Or because a leaf blew in the window and they were never the same since. Or whatever stupid Freudian ideas we have, people are the way they are because there are spiritual powers that are working on them all of the time. Do you think somebody who's 25 years old and decides they're gay for the first time in their life? That spirit has been working on them since they were a child. So that now they believe God made them that way. Be aware of the devil's scheme. Break it up. Interject into it through prayer. We're supposed to be aware of the devil's schemes. And here's the thing. Know where the battle is. If the devil is causing problems between you and somebody else, quit arguing with the other person and take it up with the devil who you actually have authority over. I don't have authority over any man. Not, not one out there do I have spiritual authority over. Lest you submit to the teaching God's given me and you're submitting to the anointing in me. But as a man, I don't have authority over another man. But you know what? I do have authority over the devil. Jesus gave it to me and he's the source of all authority. So whereas I can't do anything about a man, I can do something about the one he's submitting to. And I can drive him away. Most of the time we just don't care enough to try. We really don't. And we don't see far enough into the Spirit to get past the fact that there's this flesh suit standing there yelling at you. Not realizing he's just the voice of the enemy. Christians can be the voice of the enemy too. It doesn't make them possessed. Peter was. I have been. You may have been. Maybe not, but I have been. We need to be aware of the devil's schemes. Here's what the Bible says Jesus did to the powers and authorities. If your struggle is not against flesh and blood... You know it's against the spiritual powers. Here's what you need to know about the spiritual powers. Colossians 2.15 And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them on the cross or by the cross. These spiritual powers and authorities that we are in warfare against Jesus has not only triumphed over, He has made a spectacle of them. He gave them such a beating in front of the spiritual realm that it was a spectacle. I remember going to the, I think it's Houston Omni Center. I don't, I don't actually know what it's called. In Houston, I went to this big arena when I was a kid, pretty young, and watched Mike Tyson beat up Leon Spinks. Does anybody remember that? It was one of the shortest professional fights in history. That was not just a fight. That was a spectacle. One person was so badly beaten so quickly that everybody was amazed. That's what the cross was. Jesus triumphed over them in a spectacular fashion, and we call it a spectacle. So when we are locked in a hand-to-hand combat situation, we know it's the Lord's power working in me, We know that we are taking our stand against the devil's schemes. We're aware of what they are. And we know we are facing somebody that has been defeated in spectacular fashion. You need to have that attitude. Quit acting like, oh, demons, that scares me. Oh, the devil. You know, we are talking about somebody who has been beaten and beaten badly. What could be more humiliated than if I got in a fight with another man here? Beat him so badly that I let my kids walk around on his face. You know, that is the situation we're in. Our older brother has taken it to the enemy in spectacular fashion. 
He's left us here to walk around on Him. To tread on Him, the Bible says. We tread upon. Treads, you know, the stuff on the tires. That's not what Jesus was talking about, but that's tread. It's what rolls on the ground. You roll over the enemy. That needs to be your attitude. 1 Corinthians 2.6 also speaks of this. The rulers. We do, however, speak a message of wisdom among the mature, but not a wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are coming to nothing. No, we speak of God's secret wisdom, a wisdom that has been hidden and that God destined for our glory before time began. None of the rulers of this age understood it, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. Here you go. We have opportunity to see God's will. We have opportunity to understand and see the devil's schemes. He, however, can be kept in the dark regarding God's will. We are facing somebody who is beaten and somebody who does not have an intelligent source in your camp. Our information comes from a place that is higher than he is able to go. Our direction comes from a throne that he cannot approach. Our empowerment comes from a source he can't tap. It's not possible for him to cut off your supply lines. It's not possible for him to lend an ear to what God is telling you. It's not possible for him to infiltrate your ranks with a spy and overcome you. He is defeated and he's been kept in the dark about what's going on so that God can use him like a pawn. What happens to us when we fail is that we willingly enter into a negotiation with the enemy. Our loose lips sink ships. We sit there and complain to our friends about why we can't do the will of God and what of all of our shortcomings and failings are. And he's right there with his pencil and paper, writing it down so that when you leave, he can replay it in your mind. So that weeks later, when you're trying to do the will of God, he can tell you every reason that's already come out of your mouth that you can't do it. Be careful what you say. Be careful how you act. There is an enemy and he's roaring. He's like a lion that is walking around roaring, looking for somebody to devour. But he is not that lion. The Bible says he's like it. In reality, he's a disarmed foe who's been defeated in spectacular fashion. Who God at many times has kept ignorant of what is going on. Many times. I'm not describing him as stupid. He's smarter than you are. But remember, you're not relying upon your wisdom. You're relying upon God's wisdom. The devil's biggest flaw has been that he relied upon himself as if he were something great. That's how he ended up in sin. The same way a novice might think that they're great if they're elevated to a position and fall to pride. The Bible compares that novice with the devil. We need to take our stand. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, put on the full armor of God, so when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground. And after you have done everything to stand, stand firm then. You need to resolve within yourself... I will stand against the onslaught of the enemy no matter what he brings at me. We love the action movies. We love to see the heroes, Sylvester Stallone or Arnold Schwarzenegger or 
lately The Rock or whoever it might be, somebody who takes their stand against overwhelming forces and does not let you down. You know, if the good guy dies, you're upset, right? God needs in His kingdom the kind of men that will stand in the gap of a wall and say, the enemy, no matter how many thousands there are, will not come over me. I'm digging in my heels and I'm taking my stand. And after I've done everything to take this stand, I'm going to stand firm. Sometimes you just need to draw a line in the sand and say, I will not be pushed any further. I'm a man of God. I'm a woman of God. Devil, I will give you no more ground. That kind of persistence, that kind of determination will win. He never overcomes you by force. He overcomes you by intimidation and persistence. You cast down a thought on Monday... It shows up eight more times Monday. You cast it down. He's there again Tuesday. And he will do it as long as he thinks there is any opportunity for you to sin. But once you have put that thing so far in your past, so far under your feet, he'll pick a new thought because that one's not working. He's no different than the fisherman. Tries a new lure every now and then when he's not getting any bites. Quit giving him bites and he'll give up in whatever area of your life you're struggling in. Whether it's trouble submitting to a husband, trouble keeping your eyes clean, trouble keeping your mouth clean or your heart clean or whatever it is. Worry, anxiety, whatever it is, he will give up and try. You want relief? Win for a while. You'll get relief. You know, we've dealt with crack addictions, all kinds. You know the best way to deal with it? Don't do crack for a while. It won't be such a temptation eventually. There were things that were such a strong temptation in my life that now are not a temptation at all. <laughs> you know, it's weird. I went like seven years without a particular temptation. Then it showed up one day and I thought, what's happened? You know, I do something wrong? Yeah. No, he's just digging deeper in the tackle box. He's looking for some way to get me. Luke 21, about this taking a stand. This is Luke 21, verse 27. Jesus begins to talk about the end times and all the things that you see going on. And then he has this statement. When these things, this verse 28, when these things begin to take place, stand up, lift up your heads because your redemption draws near. When you find yourself in a day of evil, whether we're talking about the day of evil or tomorrow that happens to be a day of evil, you need to take your stand, lift your head as one whose redemption is drawing near, and you will find the strength to stand. Sometimes we spend too much time looking at the dirt, looking at the lowly things of the world. We were made to live, walk with our heads lifted up towards the heavens. Your strength comes from there. Your direction comes from there. Don't be cut off. If you want success when you fight the enemy, number one, when you find yourself in a situation where you feel surrounded and overcome, lift up your head so you can take your stand. Let heaven's light shine on your face. He'll change your countenance. He'll change your walk. He'll change your attitude. You know how many times I could skydive off of a nickel or hang my feet off the edge of a piece of paper and I went and spent ten minutes with the Lord and came out victorious and tall? You know, sometimes the answer is just as simple as wherever you are, lift up your head so that you can take your stand. We were sharing childhood stories the other night. And I began to think about this time that 
somebody was threatening me physically. They said they had a gun and they wanted my watch and there was a stabbing that night and a police shot some tires out from under. And I, as I thought about it, I was trying to remember some of the events because a lot of craziness happened to me around that time. I remembered being so frustrated with this individual, feeling so overcome by not only the temptation to give in because this guy was pushing me all over the place, wanted to fight because that was a weakness that the devil knew when I was 18 years old. He... Uh, had a good shot of getting me on. And you know, now I didn't do it because I knew the Scripture. I did it because the Spirit was in me. At some point when I felt just about to give in, I just turned my back to the guy, raised my hands, said, Jesus, I need your help. I need a way out. That is being in a day of evil and raising up your head because redemption draws near. And you know what my redemption did? The same way the devil can use people as puppets, God can manipulate situations. It so happened that a rival gang pulled into the parking lot that we were in at that time. The gentleman lost attention with me, went to them. There was a stabbing. A car got its tire shut out. And all the people that we'd been witnessing to that were oppressing us ended up handcuffed on a sidewalk. And guess what we did as brand new Christians? We put a Bible in all of their pockets, sat down and talked to them for about two hours about Jesus. They got to spend the night in a jail cell. Okay? God will provide your way out in the day of evil if you learn to lift your head. If I had been in that situation, see, I can see this now and I didn't know it then. I didn't know the grace that was upon me. Because I was on a razor's edge, ready to give in to sin. Guess what would have happened to me because of the timing of all of this if I had sinned? The same time the police walked out that shot the tires out from under and the gang walked out. All this happened within about 30 seconds. The policeman would have walked out to see me fighting with someone. I would have been arrested. The rival gang that pulled in where the stabbing occurred would have shown up. The fight would have gotten bigger. Only there would have been a preacher in the middle of it. I would have been lumped in with them. I would have been handcuffed and brought to jail just like them. The devil had a scheme and a will for me, and God had a scheme and a will for me. And God's overcame that night. There are other nights I haven't done so well. Be aware, when you're in the day of evil, lift up your head so you can take your stand. Christians are not among those that shrink back. The idea is, well, just don't go to that place. When you are called to do God's will, do not back up. If you can't advance, stand firm. If you can't push forward, at least don't go backwards. That, that is a principle that if you don't get anything else, I say, get that one in you. There is no room in the kingdom for people that keep tucking their tail between their legs and hauling butt to wherever it is safe. Can, can I say that? Hauling butt? <laughs> I, have, I worked with this guy. Uh, need to yeah, I will go ahead and tell him. He said that his wife was so big when she hauled butt it took two trips. I suspect his wife was probably a little skinny woman. He just liked to joke. All right, John 8, verse... I think I'll probably end up editing that statement out. You all remember somebody prophesied to Buzz a long time ago that he was climbing a ladder and every now and then... He's climbing a ladder towards heaven every now and then he took a rope swing trip off the side. (laughs) That was my rope swing that I just did. John 8, verse 15. Here's how we stand, okay? You want to stand in the day of evil? You want to never be in the group that backs up? You want to be in the group that 
if your job is to defend the spiritual Alamo, like that, we're in Texas, the spiritual Alamo, that you stand and you don't give way to the enemy, here's how you do it. John 8, verse 15. You judge by human standards. I pass judgment on no one. But if I do judge, my decisions are right because I am not alone. I stand with the Father who sent me. In your own law, it is written that the testimony of two men is valid. I am one who testifies for myself, and my other witness is the Father who sent me. You want to stand in the day of evil? Be where the Father sent you. Be standing there with the Father. And then you know what? You will be an immovable rock. But when you find yourself unsure that you're where the Father told you to be, unsure that He's there with you because you went out on your own, Of course you can't stand. You better run back to the last place you agreed y'all should be together. You know, when I take Judah to the mall, I say, son, if we get separated, if something happens and we get separated, I want you to meet me right here. And I pick a big landmark. Christians have landmarks in their lives. It's the last place you knew you were in the center of God's will. And when you find yourself out there separated somewhere, unsure... You're considering smoking dope or getting drunk or cheating on your taxes or whatever it is because the day of evil is overcoming you. Lift your head so that you can see the redemption and ask God to meet you and run back to the last place you felt close to Him. That doesn't mean that that's where you'll stay. It's a, it's a, it's a place you can go to hear from Him. The last place you met with Him should have been in your house. With the people that you love. Not some church in some far off land. Not the last time you heard the latest national speaker. The last time you were intimate with God should be in your house with your spouse. House, spouse. I'm rhyming. I just got that. It must be that book we read. What was that book? When Revival Terrorists. That's right. See, in the less, the fewer times, let me say it this way, the more times you're intimate with God and you have mountaintop experiences, the harder it is to find yourself separated from Him. You know, if I check with Judah every few minutes throughout the day while we're in the mall together, there's less chance we're going to get separated at all, isn't it? You want to stand, stand with the Father and you'll stand. Starting in Ephesians 6.10 again. <laughs> again. Stop rhyming. I mean it. Anybody want a peanut? (laughs) Finally, be strong in the Lord and in His mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's scheme. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore... Put on the full armor of God so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground. Having done everything to stand, stand firm then with the belt of truth buckled around your waist. The first article of armor that we see, all the rest has been an attitude that you're supposed to have, an understanding, really a relationship that you're supposed to have. Here's the first thing that a Christian's life ought to bring about. Truth. Turn to John 3. How does a Christian have the belt of truth around their waist? Well, how did Jesus have it? Let's see. John 3, verse 20. Y'all better hurry and turn. I only have so much time on a CD. (laughs) 
John 3.20. Turn or burn, baby. I'm just kidding, y'all. Uh, <laughs> Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. But whoever lives by truth comes into the light so that it may be seen plainly that what he has done has been done through God. When we came into the light of the gospel, when we were introduced to the Father of lights by way of the man Jesus, you entered into a truthful relationship. Deceit ought to be put away as you are clothed with Christ. And the, the writer of Ephesians is telling you that this is like putting a belt around your waist. Truth is. Living a truthful life is a weapon and an asset. That'll get clearer as we go. John 4:22. Hang a right, couple pages. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit, and his worshipers must worship him in spirit and in truth. If you're going to worship God, this belt has to be around your waist. It's not just for warfare, it is the attitude that you bring to God, being truthful. Turn to John 7, verse 16. Jesus answered, My teaching is not my own. It comes from Him who sent me. If anyone chooses to do God's will, he finds out whether my teaching comes from God or whether I speak on my own. He who speaks on his own does so to gain honor for himself. But he who works for the honor of the one who sent him is a man of truth. There is nothing false about him. How do you be a man of truth? You work for the honor of the Father who sent Jesus. You want to have the belt of truth around your waist? Be about doing God's will, gaining Him honor, and that will be like a soldier that has a belt around his waist that holds all the weapons. Truth should be a garment. It should be an article of clothing that's around you. You don't pray it on, you live it on. What happens when you don't have a belt? You get caught with your pants down. What happens when you tell a lie? You get caught with your pants down. In warfare, if your pants are around your ankles, it could be hard to maneuver, right? Well, when you are locked in hand-to-hand combat with the enemy and you let falsehood slip out of your mouth, it is no different than dropping your pants right around your ankles. You're having a hard time at this point maneuvering for the kingdom of God because that lie you told has got to stay true. (laughs) And the next one you told also has to stay true. This is limiting the areas that you can discuss. It's limiting the topics that you can cover and it is damaging your credibility. Christians most... No, that's not true. Unfortunately, Christians are very deceitful. It should not be true. Uh, I know some Christians that are not, and I know a lot of Christians that when it comes down to it, they sure can spin some yarn. I do not understand it. That deceitfulness will hinder your ability to warfare, and it will kill the soldiers on your left and your right. Because we don't think of one another as being dishonest. We've put all falsehood. So if you tell me something, I think that it's true. I act as if it's true. So you don't just drop your pants around your ankles. You do mine too, if it's not true. Do you understand? You need to be able to count on one another telling the truth. Incidentally, 
because there is this whole spiritual realm around us that sees what's going on, I have been told this has never happened to me personally. I have been told that when people have had difficult things, difficult encounters with demonic uh, possession, that the first thing the demon does is point out the sin of the people that's in the room because he's intimately familiar with it. You don't want to be standing there saying, in the name of Jesus, by the authority of the Christ, come out of him. And you have just lied to your wife about where you were. <laughs> or Do you understand? We need to wear truth as a garment, and that's probably all we have to say about that. John 17, verse 17. Sanctify them by the truth. What's the next part of that? Come on, somebody get there. Sanctify them by the truth. Semicolon. Your word is truth. You want to wear the belt of truth around your waist? You need to have the word of God in you. If what you are speaking is the very words of God, as Peter has told you, if you're speaking as an ambassador of God, which I have harped on every message that I can think of, as Paul told you, then truth is gird around your waist because you are speaking the word of truth, the word of God. If you don't know what to say to somebody, find some scriptural principle to say to them. God forbid, don't make up something. Don't say something that's not true. Don't tell stories that didn't happen just because you think it might illustrate your point. We joke about being evangelistic. You know, that really should not be. You know, there was a Christian comedian not all that long ago. I've never really been into Christian comedians, but I remember he was the next big rage. I worked in a place where people were somewhat familiar with the Christian way of life, but they were all lost. This Christian comedian got caught exaggerating his testimony to the point where everybody said he was a liar. I watched the effect that that had on these lost people who were really kind of interested in, in him because they heard the Christian comedian and they thought he was kind of funny. It was probably the first time in their life they realized Christians were not all nerds and dorks. That's probably not good to see either, huh? Not all socially misfit in some way. They saw somebody that maybe they could relate to and like, and then they found out in their eyes. Now, I'm not calling the man that. I don't even remember who he was. He's a liar. See, when you don't have the belt of truth around your waist, you get caught with your pants at your ankles. It's no way to fight a war. It's embarrassing for you. It's embarrassing for everybody. Have you ever been talking to a Christian brother, somebody that you love, and realized that they just told you a big fat one? It's, it's, it's hard for me to... I want to call it to attention. I'm thinking of a brother right now. I wanted to call it to his attention, but I was so embarrassed for him, I couldn't. You know? And then I went home and I thought, what about me made him feel like he needed to lie to me? Pride of life. That's what it was in that case. Now, come on, you be honest. You ever stretch the truth to make yourself look good? Don't do it. Don't do it. You're disarming yourself for warfare. We're not going to read that one, but uh, in John 18, verse 37 through 39, you see Pilate making a fatal mistake. He said, well, you know, what is truth? When he didn't understand the Word of God, when he didn't recognize the Word of God standing before him, he was unable to discern what truth is. But you're not like that. You're filled with the Spirit of God. You're learning the Word of God, and you're in intimate contact with the King of the universe that is declared to be the very Word of God. You recognize truth. You live in truth. And truth ought to be a belt around your waist. It is your very first weapon mentioned 
in doing hand-to-hand combat with the enemy. Be truthful. Now, do you understand why I say I can't lay my hands on Mandy and pray for the belt of truth to be on her? No, these are actions that Mandy already has. In the four Gospels, Jesus said, I tell you the truth. Anybody know how many times? Keep in mind, those are only four books. They're relatively short. You think ten times? Twenty? Forty? Fifty? Sixty? Seventy-eight times he said, I tell you the truth. Jesus never told a lie. And yet, seventy-eight times he said, I tell you the truth. Do you think he wore it like a belt around him? Do you think that that was a weapon that he took to the enemy? So guys, he did never have to say, I'm not, I'm not lying. Because he always told the truth. He simply said, I tell you the truth. That needs to be something that can come out of our mouth. You know what salesmen say? And I hate it when they say, so you want me to tell you the truth? You want me to be honest with you? I'm like, no, idiot, lie to me. Yeah, and what does that mean about everything else you said? You know, We ought not be like that. We ought to be able to confidently say, I am speaking the truth. In the sight of God. That would be like a weapon. Finally, be strong in the Lord. I'm going to read this a thousand times tonight. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in His mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers and the authorities against the powers of this dark world and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, put on the full armor of God, so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground. And after you have done everything to stand, stand firm then, with the belt of truth buckled around your waist, with the breastplate of righteousness in place. Where's the belt go? Anything important around your waist? A lot of important stuff around your waist, isn't there? You know, if somebody shoots you at waist level, you may not have the ability to produce offspring, male or female. Important that you have the belt of truth around. Moving up from there, anything important in your chest? All of your organs. And a great big heart, right? What protects all of your vital organs in Christianity? A breastplate of righteousness. In John 8, 46. You see Jesus' breastplate of righteousness in action. He's being accused, right? Here's what a breastplate of righteousness is for. He is being accused. People are saying negative things. They want to hurt Him. They want to kill Him. And Jesus stands up and He points to the breastplate of righteousness with these words. Can any of you... Prove me guilty of sin. I'm telling the truth. Boy, we got two in there. We got the breastplate of righteousness and the belt of truth. Why don't you believe me? He who belongs to God hears what God says. The reason you do not hear is that you do not belong to God. His breastplate of righteousness protects him. When they make accusations, he says, wait a minute, wait a minute. I've been righteous. Can any of you prove me guilty of sin? Now, I know what you may be thinking. <laughs> we can prove each other guilty of sin. He was sinless. So let's look at some other way. It's not just that you are 
sinless. That's not the idea. It's that your actions are in keeping with righteousness. And here's how the scripture describes that. And we're going to have a bunch for this because this one's a little more complicated. Matthew 3.15. Jesus did something. He didn't have to do it, but he chose to do it for a reason. It says, Jesus replied, this is at his baptism, Let it be so now. It is proper for us to do this to fulfill all righteousness. Jesus wanted to go through the steps that any man would have to go through in his pursuit of righteousness so that he could wear it like a breastplate. It would not be an area that he could be accused of having skipped, not having done. He crossed his T's. He dotted his I's. In the kingdom, go out of your way to be above reproach, to be beyond accusation. Do whatever it takes for the sake of righteousness, and it will be like a breastplate that protects you. Maybe everybody else is taking home copy paper from the office, and it's okay. But you get this little feeling and you say, you know, I don't know if I should do that. So you go out of your way not to be associated with that action. Because six months from now, somebody says, well, you were one of those Christians and you're taking copier paper from the office like everybody else. You say, oh, no, friend. No, I wouldn't do such a thing. I did not do that. And it's not that I think they're bad people that did. I just didn't think that was fitting action for a Christian. And they don't believe you. And they go around and ask people and they say, no, Eric's not the man. David's not the kind of man that would steal from the office. That's a breastplate of righteousness protecting you. I'm going to tell you one real quick that the breastplate of righteousness protected me when I wasn't righteous. Here it is. I had this boss. He was all of about 5'5", maybe 120 pounds. He rode me like a mule. I mean, this guy was one of those rasps, one of those graters in my life. And this is a time period where Jesus was teaching me to be dead to self and the devil was working very hard to get me to sin. He was vile. I guess I've said enough about that. But he was a vile man, right? Well, he had been picking on me, making homosexual jokes about me all day. And he went to relieve himself in a porta can at work. And I meant it in good humor, but it was an ugly thing to do. He's a little bitty guy. I grabbed the porta can right after he went in there and he didn't see me. And I shook it around like I was shaking a baby shaker, you know. And I mean, he's bouncing around in there. Things are splashing. He's cussing. Everybody is laughing, you know, the few people who are there. Well, then I scamper off, right? He comes out and everybody scampered off. He's, who did that? Who did that? The four or five guys that had been there just dying laughing pointed at me. He said, yeah, all right. I know he wouldn't do that. Who did that? Who did that? (laughs) The breastplate of righteousness protected me because that was inconsistent with the behavior that I would normally have done. He didn't think it could be me. Now, that that was an an illegal use of the breastplate of righteousness. But (laughs) here's the thing. You you get the point. The idea is... (laughs) The idea is, as Peter says, yeah, I probably shouldn't have told you that. As Peter says, as Peter says, 
In 1 Peter 2.11, Dear friends, I urge you as aliens and strangers in the world to abstain from sinful desires, like shaking your boss around in the port of can, which war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify, glorify God on the day He comes to visit us. See, a breastplate of righteousness is when somebody says, I think Cassidy's sleeping around. And everybody that knows her says, are you crazy? She loves the Lord. That's not possible. See, that's the breastplate of righteousness. Titus 2. This will be the last breastplate of righteousness scripture and then we'll move on. Because I'm running out of time. I've got to quit telling y'all sinful stories. <laughs> Titus 2, verse 6. Similarly, encourage the young men to be self-controlled. In everything, set an example by doing what is good. In your teaching, show integrity. That's another word for the breastplate of righteousness. Seriousness and soundness of speech that cannot be condemned. So that those who oppose you may be ashamed because they have nothing bad to say about us. You want to wear the armor of God? Be truthful. Wear righteousness like a breastplate that protects all of your organs. People won't even believe that you could have done something bad. Because they have seen your good behavior over and over and over. This is committing hand-to-hand combat with the enemy. You are aware of his schemes. You're taking away munitions. I keep moving around with this mic here. <laughs> and on the CDs, that sounds funny. It sounds like I'm getting louder and quieter and louder. We'll get a lapel mic one day. This confines me somewhat. It's probably good for your sake. I'd be bouncing off the walls. <laughs> Yeah, that's right. Pacing. Okay. So we know then that we're going to stand firm with the belt of truth buckled around our waist, with the breastplate of righteousness in place, and with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. That's kind of a confusing one. We're talking about warfare. What do you mean the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace? (laughs) The gospel that has put you, the good news... The story of Jesus, the good news of the kingdom that has put you at peace with God, makes you ready to do God's will. It's not that you're running around like a pansy pacifist, never engaging in any struggle. We're locked in mortal combat, day and night, with the enemy. It's not flesh and blood, it's a spiritual enemy. The peace is the peace that you have with God through the gospel. The readiness that's on your feet is your feet ready to run To do God's will. Luke 13, verse 32. Listen how Jesus says it. He replied, Go tell that fox, I will drive out demons and heal people today and tomorrow, and on the third day I will reach my goal. In any case, I must keep on going today and tomorrow and the next day, for surely no prophet can die outside of Jerusalem. Jesus was at peace with the Father. And so His feet were ready to do the will of God regardless of the opposition. His feet were shod with the cleats, with the sandals, with the whatever it is, shod with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. He was ready for His feet to carry Him into God's will. And Herod wanted to kill Him, and that's what we were reading about. He said, hey, you go tell that fox I'm going to do it today. I'm going to do it tomorrow, and on the third day I'm going to reach my goal. That is an attitude of hand-to-hand combat and spiritual warfare. You can't do that if you're not at peace with God. You're scared because you're liable to the enemy. 
You know why France and some other people didn't want us to attack Iraq? They didn't want us to know that they had been in uh, collusion with the enemy. You know, that's why they were hesitant. And we may, I, I don't, you know, I, I don't understand politics. I'm not commenting on that. What I'm saying is when people are not ready to run and fight about something that is obviously wrong, it's because they're not sure they're at peace with God. I'm not talking about the French. I'm talking about us. John 9, verse 3. Neither this man nor his parents sin. Y'all remember this? This is the blind man. I love the blind man. Y'all read that story and make you laugh all day long. Smart aleck blind man. They'll teach you more about Jesus than anything you could imagine. Neither this man nor his parents sinned. This is when they asked why he was that way. Said Jesus, but this happened so that the work of God might be displayed in his life. As long as it is day, we must do the work of him who sent me. Night is coming when no man can work. Where I, when I am in the world, I am the light of the world. There is a time period called day. That you work in. Nobody works at night. You work in the day. Night or death is coming when it won't be time to work anymore. Okay? You don't get to work once you're dead. No work for salvation. No work of salvation, rather. That happens in this lifetime. The gospel will give you the frame of reference that you're truthful, that the breastplate of righteousness is on, and that your feet are ready to do the will of God because the time is short. It's time to work. It's time to get it on. Let's roll, or whatever the latest slogan is that means that. It means you are ready to do God's will. Second Timothy 4, verse 1. In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who will judge the living and the dead, and in view of the appearing of His kingdom, I give you this charge. Preach the word. Be prepared in season and out of season. Correct, rebuke, and encourage with great patience and careful instruction. Friends, the gospel will give you feet that are ready in season and out to do His will. When you're talking about hand-to-hand combat, you need to know that you're operating in His strength. You need to be aware of the devil's schemes. You need to be focused on the right target, the spiritual powers. You need to be truthful wearing that as a belt. You need to have righteousness as a breastplate on you. And you need feet that are quick to run to do God's will. Do you remember uh, Philip? He's an Ethiopian who's reading a passage in Isaiah. Philip stands there. The Lord speaks to him. And he ran to do God's will. That's because he's living out the armor of God. And see, that's every bit as forceful as a soldier in battle equipped with these things. And the kingdom of God was advanced that day. He tore the enemy out of that man's life and baptized him into the kingdom of God on the spot. What would happen if he had delayed for a while? Maybe the moment would have passed. Okay, shield of faith. (laughs) I can't believe I've run out of time. Therefore, put on the full armor of God so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground. And after you have done everything to stand, stand firm with the belt of truth buckled around your waist, with the breastplate of righteousness in place, and with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. In addition to all this, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Shield of faith. Luke 22. Verse 39. This will be familiar, so you don't have to turn there. Jesus went out as usual to the Mount of Olives, and his disciples followed him. On reaching the place, he said to them, 
Pray that you will not fall into temptation. He withdrew about a stone's throw beyond them, knelt down and prayed, Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me. Yet not my will, but yours be done. What is faith? Faith is being certain of what you can't see, right? Sure of what you hope for, certain of what you can't see. Jesus was in a place where He had a will that wanted to do something other than the will that was God's. Now, it would have been sin if He chose to do it. It was not sin. This is one of the only times in Scripture you'll ever see Jesus considering finding another way. Actually, He didn't have a will that didn't want to do God's will. What He was asking is, God, is there some other will you have? Is there a plan B? Is there something else? How did He find the strength? How did He... How was he able then to say, Lord, your will be done, though? That is his faith shielding him. On what basis do you deny your will, deny your natural instincts, and follow God? You do that based on your faith, your trust in him. You remember faith is the same word as trust? When God says, I want you to step foot into the Jordan, Though it's at flood stage, because I'm going to split it. Everything in you will say, I will look like a fool. I shouldn't be doing this. I'm not going to. But your shield of faith, because those are arrows that are flying at you, those thoughts that say you're going to look like a fool. Your shield of faith will block them. Say, now I trust God and He's going to see me through. I have a lot to say about that and not much time. Faith will shield you because all of the thoughts that come to you, all of the things that attack you to keep you from doing God's will, your trust in God will push them to the side and extinguish their flames. You knowing who God is, trusting in His nature, will act like a soldier that has a shield in battle. That's not something that you pray on, it's something that you live. If you never exert your faith, you never get to see the shield working But if God tells you you're going to be in that house there and everyone around you and every thought around you says you can't do it, you know, and if you do get there, you'll get thrown out and all of those things, your trust and your knowledge of the Father will act like a shield and you will obtain the goal. Sell the house, move to Texas, whatever it is. Hebrews 12.1 it says, therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders us and so easily entangles us. And let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Considered him who endured such opposition from sinful men so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. You want to have the shield of faith? You need to think about the fact that Jesus endured all of that and considered it a joy because He knew what it would produce. Will you know that your acts of righteousness prompted by love and carried out in faith will produce something that's awesome? And so you can put away every thought that would entangle you. And you can do it and not get weary doing it. You know Hebrews 11.1 1 and what it says. That's how you carry the shield of faith. Now what's left? Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, and pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for all of the saints. Salvation should be a helmet that protects your mind. 
These are all the scriptures that say be sober-minded. These are all the scriptures that tell you to take captive every thought and make it obedient to the knowledge of Christ. When you came into Christianity, you should have put the Word of God on you as a helmet. And everything that passes through your mind needs to be filtered by the Word of God because it will protect you. Nothing sharp, nothing harmful, nothing that causes death will penetrate the Word of God and get in your mind if you use it as a filter. I had thought when I prepared this that we would spend all of our time on the sword of the Spirit. And unfortunately, I put it last. <laughs> so we were, we're out of time. But here's... Huh? Well, maybe. But I, I, let me cover some of it with you. The last thing that you do in your armor and your fighting is you get a sword in your hand. I want you to notice something. The belt... Defensive weapon. The breastplate, defensive weapon. The shoes, defensive weapon. Shield, defensive weapon. What is the one thing that you have that you attack with? The sword, the Word of God. The sword is the literal Word of God coming from your mouth. In Luke 4 and in Matthew 4, the devil says things to Jesus, and Jesus responds in every case with wham, hits him with the sword of the Spirit. The Word of God. The devil says, hey, cast yourself down for the Word says this and this and this. And Jesus says, and the Word says, bam, he hit him. The devil says, hey, well, if you're hungry, turn that into bread. And Jesus says, man does not live. And he hit him with the Word over and over and over. That sword is for one purpose, the spiritual powers. When you are speaking the Word to somebody, it's not just so that it gets into them. It's so that it begins to break those chains in other people's lives. We do our hand-to-hand combat with the Word. Don't ever, ever get into a spiritual struggle with somebody and argue. That's not the Word. Don't ever get into a spiritual struggle with somebody and use persuasive and wise arguments. Stupid things like you learned in the denominational churches. If this is a gift and I put it in your hand, certainly I'm not... Is that in the Word? Come on, man. We war with the Word of God. When the devil tells you something, when you're trying to break the chains in somebody's life, use the Word. Will the Bible, this phrase ought to come out of your mouth a billion times in your life. Well, the Bible says, well, the Word of God says, if you want to be really fancy, say, is it not written? <laughs> you know, but this is our offensive weapon. The offensive weapon is meant for the enemy, not your brother's. We don't beat each other up with this. If I see something that I don't like about Cassidy, I don't go home, look all night for the right edge on my sword to go hit her with. You know, that's how most Christians operate, how I've operated in the past. We're going to repent of that right now. The word is for the enemy. And truthfully, a lot of these, the truth is based on the word. (laughs) Breastplate of righteousness is based on the word. Helm of salvation is based on the word. Shield of faith is based on the word. They all are the word, but... You can use the word like a sword against the enemy. I thought we'd spend a lot of time there, but we're going to close here. I think you'll get the idea. Let me recap this. If you want to be successful, don't fight a war on two fronts. Don't have your kingdom divided. Your wife with one idea, you with another, and your kids with a third, and all of you hating each other. Build unity in your home, your foundation, and you'll be able to warfare. Secondly, 
In your warfare, the most effective thing that you can do is loose the angels, pray, and they do the battle for you, just like Daniel 10. They bring you the words from God. They go out and fight. Call in the air attack to soften the enemy. Then the third is in your hand-to-hand combat, you must live the armor of God and you will see success. Now, in all of these teachings about spiritual warfare, we didn't talk about demons hiding behind bushes. We didn't talk about generational curses and all of this other foolishness that is out there. If you live the Word and you are filled with Jesus, you don't need formulas. You don't need books written by authors full of visions and all of these things of how to handle all of these extravagant spiritual experiences. If you live this armor, if you meet a demon, you'll cast him out. If you meet somebody oppressed, you'll figure out how to loosen their chains. This is Bible-based. This is not sensational, but it's church survival skills. I promise you it works. It has in my life for 11 years. You know, I may be a lot of things, but most people have never accused me about being timid. And this works. I've never backed down. I can't say never. I don't recall very many times when I've backed down from the enemy in a face-to-face situation because I've never felt intimidated because the Word shows us how to live. If we do this, there'll never be a time where you feel like, oh my God, this, this situation's too heavy for me. I better pick up the phone and call thus and so. Everybody will be calling you. You won't have to call everybody else. They'll be calling you. I always thought it was funny that in that other town we lived in, other churches called our pastor for help with problems. Though we were insignificant, why was that? Because we lived these principles. You don't need a book on how to show authority over demons. You know, how to live in divine health and all of those things. You seek first the kingdom. You put these principles into practice You'll see victory in every fight you ever go into. And when you don't see victory, you'll be able to see which of these principles you didn't adhere to and fix it. We're not handicapped. Jesus was not a sensational, fanciful character. He simply did His Father's will and He saw success every time. Determination, refusing to give up, and a strict adherence to the Word of God will get you everywhere you need to go in life and in the kingdom. Stand up. We'll pray.